last announcement. Yeah, so if, uh, well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter uh, 1. This morning we are beginning our Advent series. For those unfamiliar, the Advent season is a time within the church calendar of the weeks leading up to the day and season of Christmas. The word itself simply means waiting, which is helpful, helpful for us to consider that prior to the coming of Jesus as a baby, the entire world was waiting. They didn't know they were waiting for the most part. Some knew that they were waiting for the coming of the anointed one of God to come and to make all things new. Uh, but most of the world had no idea that the grand narrative of their life and of the universe was in a holding pattern. They had no idea the most important uh, moment of their life was uh, just around the corner and right in front of them. Similarly, there are many today that do not realize that the most important moment of their life happened before they were born. Many people, though they enjoy the blessings of the Christmas season, all the warm sentimentalities that go with it, do not truly understand the significance of why it's celebrated. Even many so-called Christians, though they say things like, remember the reason for the season, or want to stress the importance of goodwill towards all men, they do this without grounding it into the historic reality of the Incarnation, unable to fully grasp the true joy of such an event has brought for us. And my prayer over this Advent season in the life of our church is that the Lord will ground us in such joy that we may be able to celebrate the birth of Christ in such a way that the cops get called on us. I pray for us to be so radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus that our joy overflows in a type of ridiculous blessing to others. I pray that we will all see with new eyes the weightiness of the statement of God with us, that our hearts are moved to tears of joy. I pray that our joy is so deep in our guts that we do not experience what the pagans experience with Christmas. By the time it has come and gone, those feelings of depression, of Christmas blues. Do you know why they feel that way, by the way? Do you know why they, perhaps you have felt this way before? It's because the smell of the aroma of Christ is in the air. The scent of hope and restoration and being made right with God is in the air. But after the Christmas time spirit has come and gone, after the media marketers have moved on to the next thing to get you to buy their product, what are they left with? They're left without real hope, left without restoration, and left without being made right with God. You see, the Christmas spirit is not something that was invented by mass marketing media. Uh, not invented by companies trying to sell you their product. No, the Christmas spirit has come about because of the church and celebrating what God has done in becoming a man and has produced this aroma of hope. So a few weeks ago, I was in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and I was walking back fairly quickly after class to the Airbnb where the family was so we could get ready and go to church. I hadn't eaten in a number of hours, and I walked by the steakhouse. They got the fans in there intentionally blowing that smoke out into the air. And I walked by, I'm like, man, that smells good. My goodness, if I could just sit down with a nice ribeye, medium, medium rare. If you eat well-done steak, the only, I don't, anyways. Uh, the, uh, you know, and uh, if I could just have a bite, then I would be satisfied, but I had to go to, back to the Airbnb. So I, I kept on walking. And then the funny thing about it is, 
I wasn't hungry before I, I began to smell the steak. You understand what I'm saying? I, I wasn't hungry. Uh, and yet, uh, this, this, this smell of food, of dinner, of deliciousness uh, wafted into my nostrils, and I had to keep going. And then, sure enough, by long after the, the smell and the scent had died off, I was still hungry. You see, because I hadn't eaten. And that's, what, that's what's driving uh, the Christmas blues, right? That's what drives the Christmas, uh, post-Christmas depression, it's because people have smelled the aroma of Christ. They smelled hope in the air. They smelled uh, possibly what it might look like for God to be uh, restored, or for, for man to be restored with God, to be made right with God. And then it passes. And they realize they've kept walking and not grounded themselves in the truths of what Christmas is all about. So my prayer for us as a church body is to stop and eat for the blessings of Christmas are for Christians. So I have uh, for our text this morning, uh, John chapter 1, if you're there, say amen. Any more times so I hold up? Uh, John chapter 1, look at verse, just one verse, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I have two points I want to make this morning, then I'll be out your way, and now that I've thoroughly gotten you hungry for steak, you can go eat. The two points is, uh, what is the incarnation? What is the incarnation? And then point number two is, why is it important for your joy? There's an event 2,000 years ago have to do with your very real joy today. So number one, what is it? What is the incarnation? Well, uh, notice in this verse that John says the word became flesh. Uh, this is where the word incarnation comes from. It means uh, uh, to, to make into flesh or to be made into flesh, right? So Eastern religions has this idea of reincarnation, right? It's to be remade in, in flesh. Uh, incarnation comes from the Latin. It means to make into flesh, to be made into flesh. And in the coming weeks, we'll be digging into more of the implications uh, of what it means uh, that the Jesus actually took on human form. But for now, let's consider what in the world John is actually saying here. Um, to do that, we understand what, what, what in the world does John mean by the word? What is this word? And so with that, look back at verse 1 with me. Uh, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, this verse might sound f- somewhat familiar to you. Uh, it might sound a lot like Genesis chapter 1, which says, in the beginning. John's intentionally doing this, by the way. John is not wanting you to think that this Jesus that he's about to tell you about, this Jesus that he says at the end of the book is who he wants you to believe in, is somehow disconnected from the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Or that somehow Jesus is God's plan B. That's right. Uh, that Jesus somehow uh, God's uh, uh, is plan B in the world. He, he isn't. And so he intentionally opens his gospel, uh, the account of his gospel, with the the same words that Moses began the book of Genesis, which are the same words that begin the entire Old Testament in the beginning. You see, John is anchoring his minds, not in the present, but in the past. Uh, Genesis goes on and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John here adds something, right? He doesn't just merely repeat what uh, Moses said. He adds something to the creation account that Moses doesn't have. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that the Word was God. He, he goes on in verse 3 to say uh, that all things were made through him, through this Word, from the beginning. And in verse 4, he says that in this Word was, was life and light. 
And so we read in verse 14 that the word became flesh. We are then to understand that who was uh, becoming flesh was with God and, and was God. That same one was with God in the beginning. This, this word, of course, uh, uh, as John will show, uh, refers none other than to, to Jesus Christ himself. John knows what he's about to write in these 21 chapters. And he's going to tell us the story of what Jesus Christ did and what he taught and what the importance of all of it was for his readers. This is a book about life, the life and the work of the man, Christ Jesus. John says this in uh, his first letter, right? 1 John 1, 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, in the beginning was the word. But he says that that word didn't just stay God, didn't just stay uh, uh, detached, but, but put on flesh. This is massively important that the Jesus actually puts on flesh. He had bones, like you and I have bones. He had taste buds, like, like you and I have taste buds. He heard the birds of the sound waves vibrating through the air. He felt the crispness of early morning as the air breathed by his skin. He felt the heat from the rays of the sun, which he had hung in the sky. God wrapped himself in human flesh. This is not something you and I spend a lot of time thinking and debating about, if I uh, had to put money on it. But it was something the early church wrestled with immensely uh, because they wanted to fully understand what does it mean to say that God became a man. They didn't have the language that you and I have uh, today. So we we recited together the Nicene Creed, uh, which was developed in the year 325. Uh, and it has, it has the language like this. We, we said this earlier. In one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So the early church believed that Jesus Christ, right? They, they, they heard the accounts of the apostles and they taught what Jesus taught, that he was God in the flesh, that he had come. And then the early church began to, to, to wrestle with, well, what does that mean? What does it look like? What's the nature of God? What's the nature of man? They believed that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, but then they had to, to, to wrestle and, and figure out what are the, old, the implications of that. And it was because of some jokers who wanted to distort the reality of who Jesus was and what it means for God to dwell in the flesh that the church had to come up with the language to fully define to the best of their abilities what the incarnation actually was. You see, in early church history, the wrestling with the idea, uh, they were wrestling with the idea of the nature of, of Jesus. Did Jesus have a real human nature like you and I? Did he have a divine nature like God? Was the human nature swallowed up in his divine nature? Did Jesus only have a human nature and his divine nature was something that he laid aside? Right? They had to figure out how does all this fit together? Did God walk around just inside of a human suit but you know, deep down really he was just God, not, not really human like you and I? And the church has had to come up with the words and definitions of what it means for the infinite to put on the finite. But because we're God's creation and not the creator, this is a task of which we are unable to fully do. For think about it. Imagine a God, if you will. Just imagine in your minds a God. And imagine that you were able to describe that God with perfect clarity, perfect understanding. What kind of God would that be? If you knew the depths of everything about him, if you could fully describe him uh, and lay him before other people, 
what kind of God would that be? Would that not actually make you the creator and him the creation? You see, we are finite humans with limited understandings and limited capacity, only knowing what he has revealed to us. And so he's revealed that in Jesus, he was fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, both at the same time, yet not confused. And you say, well, I don't understand that, Pastor. It's okay. The church wrestled for this for years. And you, you, you shouldn't, because if you truly and fully understood it to the depths of which God understands it, then that would make you God and not him. This is the idea of the Chalcedonian um, uh, council, which was in 451. Uh, they were arguing, right, the uh, heresies and heretics had uh, abounded, uh, and the church had to come up with a definition of what does it mean for God, for Jesus to be truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man. And, uh, and they, 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 they added this language about Jesus. They said, one and the same. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, we haven't actually repeated the Chalcedonian Creed together, the confession together. Oh, it's because they, 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 they always get longer, right? So we, we've done the Apostles' Creed, which is wrote around uh, year 100, uh, the Nicene Creed around 300, 325, uh, Chalcedonian Creed around 450, right? And they just progressively get longer. Uh, and if we were to stand up and repeat the, the full uh, Chalcedonian Confession, the Chalcedonian Creed, you would uh, fall asleep probably. Uh, but here's what they said about this, this, this idea that Jesus is both God and man. They said this, One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separations. These withouts, these four withouts are referred to as the four fences of Chalcedon, which means that they're more like boundaries. If you find yourself saying something like uh, the two natures of Jesus um, merely become one nature, and perhaps you've said that before, then I need to let you know that that's, that's heresy. Don't say that. It out, puts you outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And this is what it means when John says here that the Word became flesh. Jesus Christ, truly God, became at the same time truly God and truly man. But he also, he, he goes on to describe this event in verse 14. He says that, that he dwelt among us. Uh, the, the, the literal translation of the Greek here is that Jesus pitched his tent. Eugene Peterson, in his poetic rendition of this text, says that, that God moved into the neighborhood. I love that. We don't use words in our, in our, in our day like dwelt, which is the past tense of the version uh, of the word dwell. Uh, we don't use that in our day. So, uh, but you say moving into the neighborhood, I understand what that means. It has a visceral, this earthy feel to it about it. I love it. And God dwelt among us. He lived where we lived. He visited the parks that we visit. He shopped in the stores that we shopped in. He uh, went to the same supermarkets that you and I visited. This is, what, this is the sense of what John is saying here. He lived in the community we lived in. He received the same bad news that we received. He, he, he heard the good news uh, of the community that, that we heard. He lived and dwelt among us. It's language like that that causes me to think about Genesis. It was there that God walked in the garden with Adam. There in the garden that God spoke to Adam. Perfect peace, perfect shalom. You see, before the fall, you couldn't be in God's world without realizing that it was God's world that you were in. One of the greatest consequences of the fall of mankind into sin was the fact that we become blinded to the very fact that the ground upon which we are currently standing or sitting, however you want to say it, is his. It's all 
his. The air that we breathe in our lungs is his. The sun which warms our skin is his. We've become blinded to this ultimate reality because our relationship to God was cut off. Adam and Eve became exiled from the garden after the fall. Think about Adam and Eve's exile from the garden as being the opposite of what John is saying here, but different. Uh, you see, John says that he dwelt among us. You see, Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, right? And God's perfect, uh, uh, in the garden where perfect peace, perfect shalom reigned. They ate of the tree of the, uh, which they should not have sinned, and, and God exiled them from the garden. In other words, he sent them out to build their own subdivision in the middle of nowhere on top of a ground that had been cursed. He kicked them out of his subdivision to go live in a different part of the state, in a different city, in a different subdivision. That's, that's the picture. But then John says that God became a child and moved into that subdivision. You see, Mary and Joseph brought home Jesus from the manger hospital and hung his picture on the wall. This is what it means when God moved into the neighborhood. A different translation says that he, he tabernacled among us. And I like that too because it's a reminder that, of what God had done in the past with the temple and the tabernacle. It's an allusion to God's dwelling among the Israelites in the tabernacle. We see in Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, he says, uh, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see, in the past, God had manifested his presence to his people in the tabernacle and the temple, but now no longer Instead, now God takes up residence among his people in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Thus, the coming of the Christ fulfills the Old Testament symbolism for God's dwelling with mankind in the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were merely the picture by which we might understand Jesus coming and dwelling among us. Later, through the Spirit, Christ will make into a temple both you and I and the church together collectively. So the incarnation is God becoming man in Jesus Christ and dwelling among us. But, but he goes on, right? He goes on in this verse. He says, uh, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, so what, what, what John is getting after, his primary point in, in saying this is to say, we have seen what was previously and hitherto for invisible. He, he says, we have seen his glory. This, these references to glory, it, it, it harkens back to the Old Testament passages which spoke about how God revealed himself. Here's a few of them, right? So, so remember when Moses uh, wanted to see God's face? What did God say? Uh, no man can see my face and live, but, but, but you know what, Moses? Here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll, I'll put my hand over it, and it says this. While my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed you see, Moses wanted to see something that was invisible, and God showed him glory. The story of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 14, the people are rebelling, right? They're, they're, they're rebelling against God, they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron. Uh, and and, and, and uh, they, he says, uh, Moses, and they're, they're trying to intercede for these stiff-necked people. And then the people just say, like, you know what, how about we just stone these fools and head back to Egypt? And then in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, it says, The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. You see, when, when God wanted to reveal something, when he wanted to, to show himself, he, he never showed them a person. 
rather his glory. And this is what John's after here. He's, he's getting us to see, if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to know what that looks like, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And right, the New Testament is clear about this idea that God is an invisible God. Right, Colossians 1.15, it says Christ is the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 6.16 uh, is talking about God. He says, alone in his immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 1 John 4.12, it says, uh, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love uh, is perfected in us. You see, what John's wanting us to do, he's wanting us to see. If you want to see God, look to Christ. John points uh, in, in this verse is that the glory of God has been seen in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews uh, reinforces this idea when he opens up his book. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is what the incarnation is. It's God manifesting himself, putting on flesh in the person of Christ, and this is great news. Great news. Let me give you five reasons. Five reasons why this is important for your joy today, and then we'll go home. Number one, the incarnation was an act of war. The incarnation was an act of war. We don't often think about Christmas and Christmas Eve as the first shot fired in a cosmic war, but it was. The shot heard around the world, I don't know if you know this phrase, I'm sure you do if you were in American history class. It refers to the opening shot of the battles of Lexington and Concord in April 19, 1775, which sparked the American Revolution War, led to the creation of the United States. Similarly, in June 28, 1914, the first shot of World War I was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. And on September 1, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland from the west. Two days later, France and Britain declared war on Germany. These were the first shots fired in three different wars, but there was a greater war where the first shot fired in the war of the cosmos, the war against the kingdom of darkness by the kingdom of light, was not a shot with a gun, but was with the birth of a child, a child who was declared to be king. This is why it makes no sense to say uh, Christianity and Jesus has nothing to do with politics. We won't go there today. Maybe later this month we'll, we'll get into it. But the, uh, uh, Herod understood that the birth of Jesus had everything to do with politics, right? This is why when he heard the news that a, a king was being born, he sent soldiers to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, two years and younger. He understood that an insurrection had begun. The battle plans for this war, though, had been against Satan for the hearts of mankind had been drawn up since Genesis chapter 3 where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, the author of Hebrews is helpful here in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, this is the reason for Christmas. This is what gives us such great joy. This is the aroma which is created in the kitchen, as it were, the aroma of war against the powers of darkness. 
Jesus became a man in order to deliver a death blow to Satan, sin, and death itself. So number one, the, 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 <clears throat> the incarnation was an act of war. Number two, the incarnation is never ending. I don't know if you've thought about this. The incarnation is never ending. It's permanent. For Jesus, it's permanent. Jesus didn't stop being a man after his death. Resurrection, his ascension into uh, his throne and glory. I wonder if you ponder this, that Jesus didn't put on flesh for 33 years and then somehow become unembodied. He put on flesh forever. He remains a man to this day. He knows intimately what it is still to be a human being today. He can right now sympathize with us. Right? This, this, should, this should do something to uh, our eschatology. It should change the way we think about heaven, right? Uh, I wonder how many of you think about heaven and what it will be like. Um, uh, oftentimes I, I find that, that, that we think of it in terms of um, uh, mere spirit, mere spirit. Or, or we think of it as some ethereal existence in the ever after, as this type of unembodied way of being. But the scriptures say we, have, uh, we will have resurrected bodies like him in the new earth where we will walk physically with Jesus. The incarnation is never ending. This is gloriously good news for us. Number three, the incarnation was for substitution. Right? The incarnation was for substitution. Oftentimes we try to pit uh, the Christian holidays uh, against each other by saying things, well, which is more important, Pastor, Christmas or Easter? And they try to say things like, Christians shouldn't, celebrate Chris, uh, Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas because the real work was accomplished at Calvary, at, at Easter. And the rules of logic and where I'm from, this is what we call a false dichotomy, a ridiculous proposition. You see, we cannot separate the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. No more than we can separate the dates on your tombstone or the tombstones of your loved ones. You see, one is inextricably linked to the other. Jesus was born so that he might die. He was born in order that he might die. This is why he was born. You see, Jesus coming in the form of a baby as incarnate was the first gift to us. More to come. The word became flesh, not only so that he might be like us, but also in order to die for us as our substitute. Here's a lengthy quote by Athanasius, one of the early church fathers who lived from 293 to 373. Here's what he said about, uh, and reflecting on these verses. For the word perceived that death was the only way that the corruption of people could be undone. However, it was impossible for the word to suffer death, being immortal and the son, the eternal son of the father. Therefore, he takes to himself a body capable of death, such that such a body, uh, by partaking of the word who is above all, might be worthy to die in the stead of all. It might, because of the word that he had come to dwell in it, remain incorruptible. In this way, the corruption of all might be checked by the grace of the resurrection. By offering to death the body he himself had taken as an offering and sacrifice free from any stain, he got rid of death for all his peers by offering an equivalent. For the word of God, which, was, which by his very nature is over everything, by offering his own temple and body, bodily vessel for the life of all, satisfied the debt by his death. In other words, what Athanasius is saying is that Jesus took on flesh so that he could be provided as a substitution for us. Because Jesus died, we have no need to fear the wrath of God. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is gloriously good news. Number four, the incarnation meets our deepest sadness. 
Uh, I had this morning Isaiah 53 read, uh, one verse in particular in there. It says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus carried our griefs and our sorrows so that we might be set free from them forever. I want you to feel the way that. I'm going to say that again. I want you to feel this. Jesus carried your griefs and your sorrows so that you might be set free from them forever. This is not a sadness which is upon you. That There is not a sadness upon you which he is unable to carry. Well, why? Because the word became flesh. You see, we have hope. We have joy. We have gladness. We have light. This doesn't mean that the days won't be long. This doesn't mean that tragedy won't strike. This doesn't mean that there are not burdens to bear. We still live under the weight of the curse because Jesus has not returned. But here's what it does mean. It means that because of his incarnation, our sorrows are overwhelmed by the joy he gives us. It does mean that our, on our longest days, he has called us to banish sadness from our hearts. It does mean that when tragedy strikes, we know that the penalty and power of sin has been removed forever. In the midst of our burden bearing, we can be full of the promises of God and can do it all without complaining because we are bearing the burden with gladness and joy. Lastly, number five. And the incarnation gives us hope beyond the grave. Those who trust in Jesus, truly God, truly man, we ourselves have absolute confidence that when we die, we will be with him forever. We will have resurrected bodies on the last day. Death is not the end. So as you begin this Christmas season, you do all your shopping, all of your planning, all of your meal prepping, all the things don't let the world steal your joy. Don't let the world tell you, hey, 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 you're, you, you're enjoying it a little too much. It's, that's ridiculous. The cops should be called at your, I should get calls that like, hey, like uh, the cops were called at uh, someone at your church's house because they were partying too loud. Like I, I, I want those kind of calls because we love Christ so much and this is Christ's world. Christ transforms everything, even the way we enjoy Christ, uh, Christmas. He changes everything. So friends, breathe deep the aroma of Christ. Eat from the table of the king. Drink from the wells of living water. Taste and see that he is good. Father God, we come before you this morning as people who have been redeemed. Uh, come before you as, as people who, uh, though we don't deserve it, because you have freely given us the faith uh, in your son, that everything now changes, Father that you are currently transforming everything, that, that, your, uh, that the work of Jesus in our lives restores and transforms all aspects. There's not anything in our lives by which uh, we should not be thinking about how does the good news of Jesus transforms this, including our celebrations, including our gift giving, including the politics of where we find ourselves, Father, all of it is transformed. There is no neutrality, but Christ reigns over all. So Lord, let us walk in this season of thankfulness, of, of joy, true joy, true 
true understanding of the reason for the season, true uh, comprehension of what you've actually done, uh, of Jesus becoming a man, dwelling among us, showing us who you are. And may we love it. Tell others about it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.